It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskan. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 31st of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. A national working group made up of HSE employees and two GPs is to make its recommendations on the process for closing the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. The group headed up by Dr Mike O'Connor and Mr Liam Woods is expected to conclude a review of the decision to close the unit in Our Early September. The HSE believes patient outcomes are at risk in Navan. One of the two GPs on the working group, Dr. Catherine Wan, says the ED should close. The other, Dr. Seamus McMenamin, believes uh, that the emergency department cannot continue as it is because it is not safe. But he argues that additional resources should be used to make the ED safe instead of closing it. So in the coming days, uh, the group is expected to report to the government on the process for closing the unit safely. The government is then expected to proceed with the closure and divert all emergency patients elsewhere, the majority of whom will be taken to Drogheda. Uh, As you know, the Save Navin Hospital campaign group is very much uh, opposed to this and last night held uh, another meeting in the New Grange Hotel to decide on the next steps. Let's speak to the chairperson of that group, Peter Tobin, who's the leader and founder of the AIM2 party and a TD for Meath West. And a very good morning to you, Peter Tobin, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Are, are people resigned to the fact now that the closure of the emergency department is inevitable? No, I have to say I was, I was delighted at the meeting last night that there is a very strong feeling of defiance and anger in relation to what the government and the HSE are doing. People are not resigned to it at all. People are very conscious of the fact that um, there were 10 hospitals on a HICWA hit list uh, over 10 years ago for their A&Es to be closed and that the actions of the, uh, the campaign uh, over the last 10 years has meant that Navin is the last uh, hospital A&E standing from that list. So people realise that while it's shocking 
that we have to keep campaigning so hard, but that campaigning has kept our A&E open. And that people were very much of the view that this is a life and death issue. Uh, hospital overcrowding results in about 350 deaths every year. And just in the last week, we have the Matter Hospital, uh, which has asked patients not to come near it due to overcrowding. And Cavan Hospital also put out the same statement. And that's in the middle of the summer. So people were acutely aware last night at the meeting that we are entering into a winter period with the likelihood of another uh, COVID wave. And we also have a capacity crisis in uh, hospital A&Es. And that the closing of this A&E in Navin would be an absolutely unmitigated disaster for the people of County Mead. Um, there were points of disagreement that came up last night. Um, Deputy Damon English was at the meeting um, and uh, you know, we, we were discussing the review that you've just mentioned there. Um, now, people were making the, the, the point that the review doesn't allow for or doesn't even study uh, keeping the A&E and investing in it to make it better. It only looks at closing the A&E and moving things to Drada. Well, it says in black and white, the it process. It says in black and white, but Damien English, and I, and I want to be fair to him, uh, and, and I am going to be, be fair to him, he disagrees with that. He says the review will take into consideration the fact that uh, NAV and A&E could have a future, could be invested in, uh, and uh, could uh, provide services into the future. Now, I read out the terms in black and white, uh, which contradict uh, what Damien English had said, um, and we said that we, if we, we want, as a red line, the terms of reference of the review broadened to include a cost-benefit analysis of investments and in and protection of NAV and A&E. And also, many of the unions were there last night, and they said they wanted community stakeholder representation on the group who are ca- carrying out the review. There's no community stakeholder representation, and indeed. Your show a couple of weeks ago played a clip from um, Stephen Donnelly in the Dáil who said that there would be engagement, community engagement, uh, meaningful community engagement with stakeholders on this issue as part of the review. That hasn't happened. I've actually written a letter to the co-leads uh, of the review, uh, Liam Woods and Michael Connor, and Liam Woods came back to me and said that there would be no engagement with the Save Navin Hospital campaign. The timelines are too tight. Uh, according to him, mm. uh, for that to happen. Yeah, well, we did ask Damien English uh, to join us on the programme uh, this morning to discuss the future of uh, the unit uh, following on from your meeting last night. Uh, the Minister isn't uh, available to us today. I think he's going to be available tomorrow. Uh, but there really is uh, nothing in the terms of reference. Uh, and the working group is obliged to follow the terms of reference. Uh, but there's nothing in the terms of reference that would uh, suggest or ask them to suggest ways of building up the unit. Uh, this is a process for closing the unit and everything uh, that they've been asked to do says exactly that. Yeah, I, I made that absolutely abundantly clear that uh, we can't live on a, on a promise and a prayer in relation to this. We were promised 10 years ago a brand new regional hospital uh, in, in Navan and it was written in, in black and white by the same TDs um, who are basically saying that you know, this review will be broad enough to take into consideration the future for Navin. Obviously, that real regional hospital never materialised. Um, so you know, if we, we want it, mm. it published if there's to be a change in the review because the review quite clearly does not allow for an existence of Navin A&E into the future. 
and that's really important. So, okay, and Damien English, uh, I think, in fairness, has been saying for the last ten years and more that he, he doesn't want the emergency department in Navan to close. I know that for the last twenty years he doesn't want to see any downgrading of uh, the hospital. Uh, the minister attended your meeting last night, trade unions, community groups. Who else were there? Were the Sinn Féin reps there? Yeah, we had Sinn Féin TDs and we had a Sinn Féin councillor. Um, we also had an Aintu councillor there as well. Um, the Labour Party representative for the area was there. Uh, Senator Shane Castles from Fianna Fáil was there. Um, and there were many uh, business organisations and groups and okay. uh, and farmers. The, uh, the, the, the Labour representative, uh, that's Annie Hoey, is it? No, oh, uh, Tracy McElhenney would be there. Oh, she's okay. unelected rep. Yeah. She's, um, but she's, I think she's, okay. uh, she spoke at the hospital campaign. Okay, because uh, uh, Annie Hoey is a, a senator uh, uh, and represents the Labour Party and she's from County Meath uh, and I thought she had a particular interest in this. Yeah, we've never seen uh, Annie Hoey at any of the hospital campaign okay. meetings. Uh, now, what about the other senators? Uh, there's an independent senator, Sharon Kyogen, was she at the meeting? She wasn't at the meeting now, uh, either. Um, so we, okay. it, it was just those elected reps that were at the mm-hmm. meeting. But Re- Regina Doherty, another senator for no, uh, who's from the area. There's no senators for me. They're uh, national constituencies, uh, but sure. uh, you'd expect because they're from the area they'd have a particular interest. Uh, Regina Doherty. Co- no, she wasn't there. And I also called um, Helen McEntee's office mm-hmm. in advance of the meeting to ask would the minister be able to uh, attend and. Um, we, we received no word back and Minister McEntee uh, didn't attend uh, okay. last night. And Th- Thomas Byrne is away, I think, is he on Thomas uh, Byrne again, I asked uh, and, to attend. Yeah. Uh, he said he was away in business. Yeah, uh, on government business, I, I think, in fairness, he, he yeah. went away on government business during government the week. Yeah. The key mm-hmm. issue... For, jo- jo- um, Johnny Gurk was in attendance. Johnny Gurk and, yeah. and okay. uh, Darren O'Rourke made okay. good contributions okay. uh, at mm, uh, yeah. the meeting last night. Okay, okay. Um, so the, the key issue for us now is, is where do we go now uh, as a hospital campaign? Because we are absolutely 100% deter- determined to protect the A&E. We're not accepting the government's uh, or the HSE's plan in this. So we set, we set out a number of objectives in terms of this. Um, and one is we're going to look at um, a consultancy firm to carry out a cost-benefit analysis for ourselves of protecting and investing in NAV and A&E into the future. Something, a document that we can have to, to show to the HSC, to show to the government, this is what professionals believe the cost would be to make for a safe and functioning A&E uh, in, our, in our county. Um, so that, you know, they can't bamboozle us with the fact that they have done this study and, and that study. When would you hope that to take place and well, conclude? I, I can't say at the moment. We're, we're literally going to be talking uh, to people today about procuring that. Okay, so because the, the, I, I think the recommendations are expected in the early half of September and I, I think um, there won't be much surprise if the unit is closed by the end of September. Well, the timeline that I'm hearing is a little bit longer than that. Okay. Uh, you may be right, uh, Michael, mm. um, but the timeline I'm hearing is that this report will be finished by the end of September. Uh, and that they aim to have it um, closed um, before December. Um, that's um, the timeline I'm hearing. But it, as you say, it, it could be faster than that. The other elements that we're, we're carrying out is we're going to look at any potential for a judicial uh, review or, or an injunction in relation to this. Given that the completely confused uh, governmental process uh, of this, whereby we have a government saying one thing, we have a minister uh, saying another thing, that a Department of Health saying another thing, and finally a HSC ignoring at all and um, so we're going to just seek legal advice uh, in terms of that we are also that you going may to legally challenge it through the courts we're, we're going to we're going to just at, at least uh, to see what's possible there i'm, I'm not sure if okay. it is possible uh, if 
usually legal challenges to the courts are only allowed if processes haven't been legally followed uh, as such. Um, but we're going to at least get advice uh, from a barrister in relation to that as well. Um, and, and the other issue is we are going to have a protest outside of the HSE offices in Kells in a matter of about uh, two to three weeks. Uh, and this protest will include a number of very visual images um, and um, which will indicate the disastrous outcomes that will happen to yeah. Meath if this closure uh, uh, proceeds. Is the appetite there for that? There's a hunger there. The Are you sure? Because, I mean... Um, I'll I tell you, Michael... The, 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 there was a significant drop in the number of protesting last time round than the time before. It went from 10,000 to 7,000. And I, I think there's been a significant drop in the reaction, let's say, to the programme. I don't know if that is a gauge of anything or an indication of anything, but you can't help but think that people are, are tiring of it. And as this goes on, how long can you campaign for something? How long can you fight a losing battle? Well, first of all, it's not a losing battle, first of all, right? The second thing is, we knew that the numbers would be a little bit lower in the last March because two things. It was happening in holiday season. It was the first time we ever held a March, March when people were on summer holidays and people were contacting us and saying, Pather, I'm away. It's a disaster. I'm away. But uh, we're there with in spirit. And also, many people, you know, even uh, will say that COVID was still lurking around at that stage and people were cautious of, of large public gatherings uh, when COVID was there. But we collected 15,000 petitions, Michael, in the space of a number of weeks. And those 15,000 people from me stated very clearly that they are completely resolutely against the closure of the a &E. And we'll be bringing... The, those 15,000 petitions to the Minister this Friday uh, in relation to this. Secondly, the biggest threat to the future existence of Navinani &E is for people to get into their minds that this is a losing battle. Because once that happens, the HSC wins. The HSC wants to convince people mm. that this is, it, this is a done deal. But the fact is, since 2010, 2011, and in 2013 with the Small Hospital Framework document, they've been trying to achieve something, and we have stopped it. Now, my view is that there's going to be a change of regime. We're going to have a change of Minister for Health. There's no doubt in December. Uh, there's going to be a new Taoiseach uh, with Leo Varadkar taking over. There's going to be a new Minister for Health. Our objective is to get into uh, that new regime space mm. and try to convince the new Minister to actually uh, have a backbone and implement... Yeah, but there is the chance that the emergency department will close uh, before well, uh, the change of minister, minister. And, and the current minister uh, doesn't think this is a subject that's open for discussion. Just remind me, wasn't it the 13th of June uh, that you met with Stephen Donnelly and all of the local TDs and uh, political representatives met with Stephen Donnelly? Uh, uh, but since then, I, I don't think anything's happened. Uh, the uh, councillors... Uh, haven't even been responded to. They've asked for a meeting with the minister. The minister doesn't respond to local media or community groups. Uh, I don't think he's met with you or any of the other opposition TDs. Uh, Damien English was at your meeting last night. Uh, has he spoken to Stephen Donnelly since the 13th of June? No, not that I know of. We have another letter in from the campaign to, to look to speak to, uh, to, to Stephen Donnelly in relation to this. The minister is running away from this issue uh, and won't deal with it whatsoever. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a higher political question uh, around this. The fact that, you know, you have a minister who is so visibly and so publicly insulted by the HSC, telling him he's wrong on the radio, telling them they're not going to implement what he's asked for. You know, another senior HSC um, uh, official basically saying that he's been gagged by the minister in public. You know, I have never witnessed in my time in politics 
ever. The public servants um, so uh, openly and publicly disregard the words of a minister. And, you know, there's no authority there. That's the, the unfortunate thing about it. Uh, the Minister for Health has no authority over his department. And, you know, we're hoping... No, if, he, if, he, if he closes the emergency department, uh, you may eat those words. Well, listen, I'm I'm giving you exactly my analysis of the situation as it stands. Mm. And, you know, uh, know, he's he's proven his authority by pausing this decision. Uh, He has made it clear, I think, that he wants to proceed with the closure, but he he wants reassurances because of the concerns that have been raised elsewhere. But again, and, and this is a really key point, if this concern has been raised elsewhere, those concerns have been proceeding for the last seven, eight, nine, ten years, without any investment, without any uh, strengthening of services, without any employment of new Mm. consultants into that space. So when people say that this is a life and death issue, and then they'll allow it to happen, uh, to to go on uh, for seven to ten years, that really, you know, puts question marks over Mm. what exactly um, they're saying. And the second point in that is, 23 consultants, in Drogheda Hospital, wrote letters Mm. to the HSE stating that if they proceed... Yeah, but one, what, 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 one of those consultants, Dr. Ian Cunahan, is on this working group. So undoubtedly that view will be represented. And if they come forward with recommendations for a safe process for closing NAVIN, that will be factored in. Uh, but when it comes to the last 10 years or however long this risk has been in NAVIN, uh, that may be the case. But if you're telling us that this closure it will take place in December if it does go ahead. Uh, you're talking about a, a minister who was told last November that somebody could die unnecessarily and certainly there's a risk uh, of poor patient outcomes in the unit if he doesn't act. And he hasn't acted if it goes on till December for over a year. Well, it's, it's well over a year that these so-called um, arguments have been made. They've been made for years uh, at this stage. So all I'm saying to the people who are listening to your show at the moment is the Save Navin Hospital campaign is going to fight and we are going to win to save Navin A&E. We are going to do everything in our power to prove without a shadow of a doubt, empirically and scientifically, that Navin A&E's function is a good thing into the future and investments can be made to make it one of the best A&Es in the country and to, to deal with the rising population that we have. That the background of this is a capacity crisis in A&Es all around us. That even the, the HSC have... Uh, published reports themselves which show that their ambulance services are threadbare and that they're finding it very difficult to reach their one-hour objective for picking people up uh, in their ambulances. We're going to carry out direct action, public protest, investments in, 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 in research, um, and we're going to make sure that we protect our A&E. And I would just ask people, get behind it. Be mm. defiant. Don't okay. let the, the HSE win. Don't let them get into your head. And okay. Say, uh, have you a date for that protesting in Kells? We haven't got a date as okay. of yet, but we but will be publishing that very shortly. Yeah. Okay, and that'll be the next step in this campaign, uh, I take it. Uh, uh, and undoubtedly yeah, we'll hear... Friday is, uh, we're giving 15,000 petition yeah. names to the mm. Minister um, okay. to show it is the strength of feeling in Meath. And the next step after that will be the protest in Kells. Okay, and we hope to speak to Minister Damien English on uh, the programme uh, tomorrow morning. But thank you for speaking to us uh, this morning. That's uh, Peter Tobin, founder and leader of AIM2 and chairperson of the Save Navin Hospital campaign group. Now, I, I don't know if you think it's a case of fighting a losing battle. 
Uh, but uh, whatever your view on it is, if you do wish to share your view, uh, you're more than welcome to do so. Uh, if not, that's fine too. But we will be speaking about this, it has to be said, a, a little bit later on in the programme as well. We'll be joined by Sinn Féin's Darren O'Rourke. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, has uh, praised Bernardo's for 60 years of invaluable work that has been doing with some of the most vulnerable in uh, this country. Bernardo's started its work in 1962 and President Higgins said across the six decades since its foundation, Bernardo's has impacted profoundly on the lives of many vulnerable and disadvantaged children and families, constantly adapting to the needs of an ever-changing Ireland. Bernardo's has worked tirelessly to provide a safe environment, a good education, opportunities for development and support and counselling to young people who are marginalised or at risk. And he said to Bernardo's, as you mark this 60th anniversary, you have much to reflect on with great pride. Your legacy is already an invaluable one and I thank you for your vital work. And I imagine the President was thanking Bernardo's on behalf of uh, the people of Ireland. Let's speak to Stephen Moffat, National Policy Manager with Bernardo's. Good morning to you, Stephen, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. 60 years behind you and a, a, a great legacy to be proud of. Uh, but what about the future? I think like a, a lot of charities, Bernardo's facing into a very difficult year this year. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on this morning, Michael. It's always great to come on. Um, yeah, we, we look back, you know, in fondness over the work that we have been able to achieve uh, over the past six years for children and families across across the country. But yeah, well, certainly it's, it's it's all at the moment about looking forward, about what we're able to do, what we're able to prioritise. And, and realistically, trying to respond to the needs uh, of children and families uh, at the moment uh, and into the future. And obviously at the moment, our, our big concerns are around cost of living, around having enough family support out there and available uh, to, to support families with the issues that, that they're facing. And unfortunately, a lot of families' issues are being exacerbated and are being uh, stretched because of the financial pressures they find themselves under at the moment. Mm. Uh, and the fact that, unfortunately, in lots of parts of the country, uh, you know, support for families uh, just isn't there or it's... Uh, parents and families are put on long waiting lists. Okay, and this crisis uh, comes on the back of the COVID crisis, the cost of living crisis following the COVID crisis. Uh, What kind of an increase have you seen in numbers coming to you looking for help? So our waiting lists we found in the first year of COVID alone uh, increased by approximately 40%. Uh, In the last year, we've seen an increase of almost 25% in our, our waiting lists. Um, a lot of the families that we would have supported, uh, you know, prior to COVID, uh, they didn't see any of the benefits, or certainly very few of them saw the family benefits, you know, of working from home and things like that. They weren't in a position to, to reap those benefits. Um, so they were, they were put under huge pressures, financial pressures, stress uh, of, of, you know, there was no uh, ability to, to reduce stresses because all the families were, were in the homes, often in inappropriate housing. Uh, and then straight off the back of that, they're into a cost of living crisis. So these families have really been hammered over the last number of years. Uh, there are uh, there, there are issues which might be around parental mental health issues, uh, around parental separation, some issues around addiction. Unfortunately, those those issues 
have been exacerbated because, yeah. firstly, because of COVID, and now because of uh, the stresses they're feeling around uh, cost of living. Why is that the case? Uh, I mean, why uh, is a charity like Bernardo's necessary when there's problems in families such as uh, the ones you just mentioned? Uh, is that not the duty of the state to provide services for people in those circumstances? Well, we we absolutely do believe it is. You know, it's the role of the state, and obviously, a lot of our funding will come through through the state uh, to be able to work with families. And uh, we think it's important that there's a voluntary sector organisation providing that because there's a there's a trust we we believe that families have in services such as ourselves. Uh, you know, where our best in, our our primary interest is the best interest of the child, making sure the child is safe. Uh, but doing that by looking at the family as a whole. You know, we try and uh, think, consider what's, what's the best interest of the child, but also, you know, what what circumstances does the child find themselves in? You know, some of the issues the child might, might be facing is because parental, uh, some of those parental issues I outlined earlier. Mm. And it's about providing a holistic support to the, to the parents as well as the child uh, about what's happening within the household. Okay. Uh, and we're uh, concentrating here, or at least Bernardo's is concentrating on, on uh, the welfare of uh, the child uh, who is always an innocent player in these circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we know that childhood lasts a lifetime. So what happens to a childhood uh, within their formative years is going to have a big impact on their that sounds like the line has dropped out on us unfortunately um, I think we'll uh, try to get Stephen back on the line there whatever happened uh, uh, gremlins in uh, the system uh, but uh, as I say we'll try to get Stephen back on the line and uh, to hear a little bit more about some of uh, those problems that are impacting on children uh, because Bernardo's uh, is concerned about a a number of things that if there is an intervention in those circumstances uh, that the child could be referred to, to Tusla possibly taken out of care, into care and out of the family uh, situation or indeed uh, could end up homeless as uh, the cost of living continues uh, to increase and put severe pressure uh, on so many families uh, because of uh, the lack of support that's been provided elsewhere and so many uh, people in the country at the moment who are obviously uh, finding it difficult to make ends meet and uh, relying on charity uh, such as Bernardo's. Uh, we actually do have Stephen back on the line. Stephen, I was just uh, explaining uh, to people that you're concerned that because there's a lack of intervention in some of these circumstances that a, a child could be referred to Tusla uh, or taken into care as a, a result or end up homeless, as the case may be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what, I, what we want to be able to do is provide uh, you know, support to families where and when they need it. Uh, and obviously, for us to do that, uh, we, we need to be able to have support services in, in different parts of the country. Uh, and we want to be able to work with families as they come forward asking for help. Unfortunately, some parts of the countries. Uh, some parts of the country, uh, parents and children, uh, our families have to reach certain certain thresholds to access support. So that means that you know parents who who are in a position they want help, they want to focus on their parenting, focus on uh, doing more for their children, they're having to wait uh, a, a long period of time to be able to get that support and help. Which means that over that period of time, issues can uh, can worsen. Uh, you know, which obviously has an impact on the on the child. So we want to be able to provide that support as quickly as possible, make it as accessible as possible to families, because the earlier do that, the the less of an impact uh, things are going to have on a child. 
Okay. Uh, are you able to cope with the demand? Are you able to respond to everybody who looks for help? Uh, we, we do our absolute utmost, but unfortunately, as, as I mentioned uh, uh, earlier on, our, our waiting lists are growing. So there are certain parts of the country where, you know, families who are coming uh, to us uh, looking for help and support might have to wait slightly longer than we would certainly uh, ideally uh, want families to wait. Uh, but we are always doing our absolute utmost to provide support to families who, who come to us, um, you know, making sure, uh, as, as I've mentioned earlier, uh, prioritising the best interests of the, of the child. But for us to to really go out there and provide the support that families need and deserve, particularly at the moment with uh, all these uh, exacerbating issues around cost mm-hmm. of living, we do need to see more funding in family support services. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and we think we need that because of uh, that uh, puts children first, and it's about prioritizing. Should be about prioritizing children at the moment. Okay, Stephen, we have to leave it there, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. So thank you. And, uh, apologies for the dropout in the line there. That's Stephen Moffat, who's the National Policy Manager with Bernardo's. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Well, Deirdre and Kells, thanks for texting as always. Uh, Deirdre says, again, keep the emergency department open. Disastrous if they close it. Uh, but maybe it is a losing battle because I don't think we've heard uh, from many more people uh, this morning. I think it's just Deirdre uh, who's called in uh, uh, along those lines. Uh, but thanks uh, for doing that, Deirdre. Actually, we had a, a call from Michael uh, who lives outside of Kells and Michael says he, he's sick and tired listening about Navin Hospital. He says, Talk is cheap. Okay, maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe the story is going on so long uh, that it feels like a losing battle or that uh, the wind has been taken out of the sails as such. But anyway, Michael is sick listening to the talk about Navin. Uh, he, he says, uh, the marches have achieved nothing and he's urging people in Mead not to take part in any voting, not to vote for any party, uh, until such time that it's all sorted out and the hospital is left open and resourced properly so that it's safe. Thank you indeed. Uh, the next election could very well be after the emergency department closes uh, in September, October, November, December. Um, uh, it seems as though uh, December would be the uh, best bet if you want it to be kept open. But anyway, thank you, Michael, for your call. Now, uh, another cigarette haul. Well, cigarettes and roll your own tobacco worth five and a half million euro this time. Four and a half million cigarettes and three tonnes of roll your own tobacco. Uh, they were seized by revenue in Dublin Port, as you've been hearing in uh, the bulletins uh, this morning, uh, but were destined for County Mead a- again. And once again, uh, they had come to this country from the Netherlands. Let's speak to Benny Gilsonen, who's a national spokesperson for Retailers Against Smuggling. A very good morning to you again, Benny, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, Michael, thanks for giving me the opportunity. How much space would you need for three tonnes of roll-your-own tobacco? Can you paint a picture for us at all? Well, Michael, three tonnes of roll, you know, you, you, you take up a pouch a pouch of 30 gram tobacco and you know the size of it. It's not, there's not you, much you weight put, in it, yeah. No, you, you'll put a good many of them into your pockets. So you will. Yeah. You know, in all honesty, and you'll walk around and you won't even know that you have them in your pockets. Right. When you're talking about three ton, like you're looking at you're looking at bales of straw, you know, at the present time in the fields, mm. and you visualise the size of that bale of straw, and that's probably in and around half a ton in weight. Mm. Well, to ba- tobacco would be 
probably 20 times lighter than that. <laughs> right. so that's the size you're looking at of a bale of tobacco. Yeah. And you've got to have huge containers. So you need 20 bales of hay for half a tonne. Uh, so maybe four, 40 bales uh, for a, a, a tonne. Ton uh, and three times that, 120 bales of hay to make up three tonnes of roll-your-own yeah. tobacco. Ah, for God's sake, yeah. that's incredible. That's, that's, that, that's what we were looking at, Mike. This is the type of quantities that we're talking about. But who would have the nerve to put that on a boat and bring it over from the Netherlands to Ireland? Well, as I have said before, it's obvious that and this, this tobacco is being brought in for factory operation. It's not being brought in in pouches to be used as roll-your-own. It's been brought in, obviously, to make cigarettes, like they were doing before in Jenkinstown. Mm. And, like, you know, the market for the cigarettes is there, much more so than the market for tobacco. Now, the market for tobacco has grown, but it hasn't grown to the level that there's a need for that type of quantities coming in. Mm. It is down to the fact, in my opinion, that it's for manufacturing cigarettes. And from the Netherlands, uh, I take it there's no coincidence in, in that and the last story we spoke about and the fact that it's heading towards County Mead. Yes, but this is the, this is the third, the third uh, uh, consignment that has been seized uh, in Mead or en route to Mead. Uh, so again, it, 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 it's striking to think that this sort of operation is being carried out within the county and that no one knows who is behind the whole thing. You know, it, it's obvious that it is big-time criminals is bringing it in because they're the only type of people who can afford to lose the money that's invested in this. Hmm. Uh, what happens to the tobacco when they seize it? As far as I know, it's, uh, it's incinerated, Michael. Uh, all of this product is incinerated, you know, so that it can, can, can never be taken to be reused. It, it's burned. Okay. I presume they test it before they burn it. Well, that that I don't know uh, whether mm. they do or not, Michael. You know, I go back, I go back a number of years when uh, we started this campaign, and Mary Harney was Minister for Health. We asked at that time to have cigarettes analysed, and the attitude of herself and the department was that all cigarettes are bad for you. Well, we never said we have never said cigarettes are not bad for you. Mm. You know, sorry, she was concerned all cigarettes were the same, but they're not. Like, you know, the, the general general uh, packet of smuggled cigarettes, uh, the illegal smuggled cigarettes, is not the same as the general packet of legitimate cigarettes. Mm. Okay, and um, this was a routine check. Uh, I mean, it was potluck that this was found. It wasn't down to intelligence or they weren't tracing it. Um, so you'd have to assume that there's more uh, on this scale that is getting through? Well, um, we have always uh, heard, Michael, that uh, from customs, that the, the spot checks they do is one in every 15 containers, one in every 10 vans, and one in, uh, one in every five containers, one in every 10 vans, one in every 25 cars. So, you know, it tells you if one comes through and is got... There could be four more coming directly behind it. Hmm. You know, that was always uh, the indications that we got from Cousin, that they, they, could, they can only do so many. Hmm. Uh, what are you saying? Would you uh, think they should be testing every van, lorry and container coming into the country? 
scanners, the scanners themselves, everything should have to go through them. Now, fine, we're going to create a problem. Uh, you know, the, the Department of Industry and Commerce say, oh, we can't hold up the country just because there's a few illegal cigarettes or a few ton of illegal or smuggled tobacco coming in. But it's the only way, it is the only way that we're going to stop smuggling of any nature, of any product, mm. is by checking everything. You know, if it means employing more people to do so, well, then employ them. It will pay to do it because we will stop the, all of the illegal products coming into the country. Yeah, well, I suppose uh, they're worth five and a half million euro. Um, but if they'd been sold in the shops instead of illegally, the estimate is is that that would have resulted in 4.3 million for the exchequer. Going into the budget, uh, I, I take it that would be handy money for the government to have. Of course. Be very handy money for the government, and you know, take it take it from me, Michael. We're going to see in the budget next month another increase on the packet of cigarettes, the legitimate packet of cigarettes. You know, which is creating uh, a wider anomaly between what we are selling and what the criminal is selling. Okay, just remind us of the difference: packet of cigarettes on the streets, illegal, and a packet of cigarettes in the shop. Well, the packet of cigarettes in the shop is fifteen fifty, and they're varying from five euro to eight euro on the streets, Michael. So you know, depending on where you're buying and depending on who you're buying them from, uh, and depending on what quantity you're buying. If you're buying just an ordinary single packet, that's the type of money you're paying. If you're buying a, a full outer of the two hundred pack, uh, you're probably buying them at a five or a pack. Okay, Benny, we leave it there. Thank you indeed. For joining us, as always, Benny Gilson is a national spokesperson for Retailers Against Smuggling. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, colleges will reopen in uh, the coming weeks. Where students are, are going to live is uh, another day's work, at least as far as some of uh, the students who haven't secured places yet or who haven't uh, secured their leaving search results at this stage uh, for that matter. Let's speak to Hannah Brennan, who's the Vice President of the USI for the BMW region. Good morning to you once again, Hannah. Thanks for joining us on the the programme. How bad is it out there? Um, Bad. (laughs) Um, It's probably as bad as it's ever been at the minute. Um, I suppose we tend to judge the severity of the situation by how early media outlets start talking about it. Right. Um, And I've been having this conversation since I started this job. So, yeah, everyone's aware of how bad the situation is at the minute. Right. Uh, When you you say uh, it's bad and worse than it's ever been, I I take it, is it uh, that it's unaffordable or is it uh, that it's impossible to get somewhere no matter uh, how much you have to spend? It's uh, both, I believe. Um, it's kind of a case of supply and demand. Um, the places that are available are hiking their prices up because they know they can because there's such high demand. And then in other cases, there's just no availability. So it really depends on where um, you're trying to get accommodation. Um, some places are unaffordable and some places there's just no availability. Nice. Uh, well, you're burgered really if there's no availability, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a very scary situation at the minute that we're facing into. Um, USI are working hard to try and figure out how to resolve things as best as we can um, while protecting the students' rights and everything. Mm. Um, one thing that is becoming more and more common is digs. Um, and we're just asking that anyone who um, goes into digs or has a student taken digs with them and um, that they have a tenancy uh, agreement just 
even something to write out like I agree that my tenants can use the fridge or that I agree that I'm not going to make noise after 10 p.m. Yeah. That kind of thing to or can't or can't you can't can't use the fridge uh, so that it's spelled out one way or the other whatever the agreement is. Oh well, we would ho- hopefully that they would be allowed to use the fridge. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah one yeah. way or the other. Um, yeah. Just so it's fair and people know what they're entering into because. In regards to digs, there is no uh, the tenants' rights mm. don't exist, and we're not going to get that into legislation before colleges start back. No, of course not. No, I, I think some people are, are very good, and they'll invite students in and really uh, work with them as if they were members of for the family. Other people will see it as a, a way of uh, getting extra income and will offer room only, and probably will say no, not the fridge because I don't want to see you in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, which is which is unfortunate. Like we we hope that people won't be doing that this year because we know the situation is so bad. Mm. But um, it is very much a case of at the minute people are just taking what they can get. Yeah, I'm sure they are, and I'm sure they're desperate. Uh, and that's the problem that uh, when people are desperate, desperate things happen. And uh, the Guardian have issued a, a warning this morning as well, uh, particularly if uh, students are desperate looking for accommodation uh, that they don't fall victim to some sort of scam. Yeah, and scams have been around uh, before this big crisis and they'll be around, but it is just something to be aware of to try and verify um, ver- verify your landlord, essentially. Um, we've or, seen cases or of, the flat, cases the, of flat, people, the, the apartment um, exists. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've seen a case of someone I know quite well um, had to pay a deposit to save the room and they went up and... Um, the house had been knocked down. So it's it's very much, do as much verifying as you can. Mm. I mean, it's hard not to laugh because, you know, it's farcical, but I mean, how does somebody feel when they're in that situation? It just seems so uh, unfair that people would be as desperate as obviously that person was, that they would hand over money to somebody uh, when the property didn't exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, it it is it, it's laughable, but it's not funny. If no, you get me. exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's a, it's a terrifying situation that we're facing into at the minute, and we're hearing lots of lots of students asking even if they can camp on campus, um, which obviously we're trying to avoid at all costs. But it's it's a very scary situation, to be honest. Um, is that something that's being considered? No. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, people were asking, yeah. but it's not. It's not going to be. Um, it's not. It's not being considered um, mm. between USI and the individual student unions because every single student union has been having this conversation and has been fighting for their students mm. um, to try and get as much accommodation as possible for them. Mm. Um, if if you are out there and listening, or if you have a child out there and listening, um, and you're in a situation where you're struggling to get accommodation, contact your local student union. Um, a lot of them have portals up on their websites um, that are linked to finding accommodation. So hopefully they, they'll be able to help you out. Mm. Yeah, I suppose I feel uh, sorry most of all for the Leaving Cert students. Uh, not only have they not got their results and um, if they've been looking for places they don't know uh, to, to live, they don't know if they've got their place in college and so on. But uh, we're talking about very young people, realistically speaking, uh, who wouldn't have looked for accommodation before. And hopefully they will be getting help from uh, parents and family and that sort of thing in doing that. Yeah, the hope is just that um, 
that there's been enough places saved in that regard because obviously p- people will have uh, pre-booked they'll kind of have half an idea of where they want to go mm. um, but yeah no that is definitely something that we're discussing quite heavily as well, well. How, uh, how that's going to impact things and it'll be worse for some than it will be for others uh, we're uh, speaking to people across Louth and Mead uh, this morning Hannah and uh, no it won't be ideal for a, a lot of students uh, but they'll have the option at least of doing the long commute uh, but some of the commutes are, are far long to even consider I mean when you uh, think about let's say uh, getting from Tralee to Dublin or from possibly Louth or Mead to uh, Limerick or Galway I suppose yeah, well, that that's the thing. If if someone's doing a three-hour commute in the morning, they're doing a three-hour commute home, realistically, that's six hours added on to people's days where they can't eat, they can't exercise, they can't study. Um, we're seeing a lot of people not going to college this year because of it or con- considering heavily or asking to go online, which is something that we're pushing for more so to try and facilitate people who may not be comfortable going back to college yet post-pandemic um, if they have issues with their health or just to facilitate as much as possible really mm. but it is definitely the the long commute is uh, there's a lot we're going to see a lot of people doing the long commute this year yeah. unless we can get something in place quite quickly which we are hoping to we are working with the government we're working with we're working with everyone we can work with yeah. at the minute. Um, it's it's totally desperate. I, I, I know. Yeah. I mean, we do have a lot of uh, listeners in Dublin as well, Hannah, particularly in uh, North Dublin. Um, and you're saying students are hoping to get digs. Uh, maybe some of our, our listeners could offer digs uh, to students who are in this uh, desperate situation. And they can charge up to 14000 a year uh, tax-free, can't they? They can indeed, yeah. Um However, that does equate to over a grand a month. We would hope that people would be a little bit nicer than that and not, not charge quite that much if that was possible. But mm. um, obviously, my my priority has to be the students. So I have to say that um, because that's a lot of money for any, anyone um, and especially a student who reali- realistically isn't working full time. Of course it is, yeah. Um, mm. it's, it's a lot of money mm. and especially in the times we're in with inflation and everything. Yeah, but I suppose, you know, uh, there are some circumstances where people could take in two or three students, um, you know, for 14000 a year or one for a lot less, uh, as you say, Hannah, and uh, have some consideration for the situation that the students are in. They really are just looking for a roof over their heads so that they can educate themselves and better themselves. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. All right, Hannah, listen, we'll uh, leave it there for the moment. Uh, thank you indeed. We'll remind uh, people to be very, very careful uh, as well. Uh, the Guardi uh, have sh- issued uh, this strong warning, as you say. Uh, it's happened in the past uh, and people have uh, been caught out in uh, the past. Uh, but no matter how desperate you are, make sure that you see the accommodation, you meet the landlord uh, and uh, that you've in terms and conditions in place before handing over money. Hannah, thank you, as I say, for joining us on the programme. Hannah Brennan is uh, the Vice President of uh, the Union of Students in Ireland for the BMW region. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as you know, uh, there's uh, concern about uh, the capacity of uh, the electricity grid to get us over the winter and literally keep uh, the lights on. There's been a a number of amber warnings and uh, warnings brought to the attention of uh, the government 
in recent weeks. Uh, but it's not the first time that there's been warnings about uh, demand, a huge demand that may not be met on the grid. Indeed, uh, the government was warned about this last autumn. When we were with you in October last year, we spoke about the tight winter to come. And despite the challenges we faced, we managed to maintain the balance between supply and demand at all times. As we look into this winter, and I'll finish on this point, we see a heightened challenge in that we have less generation available, marginally less than last winter. Our greatest risk will manifest at times of very low to zero wind and low imports from Great Britain. This is uh, the CEO of Airgrid, Mark Foley, speaking uh, to Enroctus Committee yesterday, uh, outlining uh, how dire the situation is. Uh, but he, he did tell uh, the members of uh, the committee that there's a backup plan. The contingency plans, which we have agreed in forensic detail with DSB and with major industrial units, units um are robust. So does that mean there's a guarantee that we'll have electricity for everyone right through the winter? Neither I nor anyone else here can, before you today, can offer a cast iron guarantee for this winter. Nobody can. I can say that we're very well prepared and I can say that when the wind blows we won't have issues. The risk of end customers being impacted is increased this winter because all jurisdictions across Europe are tight, interconnectors are stressed, and there will be times when it won't be just a stressed Irish system, it'll be a stressed European system. Mark Foley of Airgrid. Let's speak uh, to Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD, and his uh, party's spokesperson on energy. A very good morning to you, Darren, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. It was a very serious subject, if ever there was one. Very long meeting, went on for some six hours or or, or so. Uh, What did you learn from it? Yeah, uh, thanks, Michael. Um, well, well, I think it, it confirmed for me that we are in a very challenging position uh, for for energy this winter, and you know that that risk of blackouts is is heightened. Um, the other thing that is patently clear to anybody who watched it is that um, we're in this situation because of a spectacular mismanagement of the energy system by successive governments, not just this government, but but by successive governments. And and and, and in that, I mean, um, there has been very significant increase in demand, uh, 9% year on year. A lot of that attributable to, you know, the red carpet being rolled out for data centres. Um, so you have very significant increase in demand and committed supply, intended supply, um, didn't materialise and hasn't materialised, and that's left us in a you know with a, 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 a supply demand imbalance and a real tightness over the over the winter. And, and they gave figures in terms of the the kind of headroom, the time of the type of buffer that we have, and really it is is very tight. And it's it gets really really tight if we don't have have wind on the system, um, and if if there are any uh, challenges with with uh, interconnection with, with with Britain in particular so it's a, yeah. it's a situation i have to say that that was avoidable um and there are responsible agencies obviously the the minister of the day the department uh, the regulator themselves and and their grid and collectively and there is you know you, you'll have seen in, in, in recent days finger pointing between airgrid and the CRU mm-hmm. and we saw that yesterday that, that that that's no addition, I have to say, to to ordinary people who who um, 
uh, who, who, who are looking to, you know, heat their homes and, and light their homes this winter. Do you believe there's a risk to households being without power? So there is, and I, I don't want to overstate it. I, I think, you know, it was important and it was ourselves in Sinn Féin that called for this meeting um, uh, that happened yesterday. And, and I was grateful that, that the attendees attended and, and, and agreed to attend because what we'd had in the recent weeks was leaked reports of of uh, uh, scenario planning and disaster planning. And, and I think that's, that's a, a heightened concern amongst people um, in terms of the the risk of blackouts. I think there is a risk of blackouts. Um, I think, you know, all of the agencies are on notice now um, to, to uh, do their level best to, to ensure that those are avoided. I think the greater concern for people, uh, Michael, is, is in relation to the cost and the, 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 the runaway costs of, mm. of, uh, of, of electricity. And, you know, the minister did state it clearly, and I think it's clear from the, the markets um, that, that things are set to get very significantly worse uh, over the winter period in relation to the price of, of electricity. And it really calls at a European level for a complete change of approach and at an Irish level for, uh, you know, very uh, significant mitigation measures to be brought in to protect households, particularly the most vulnerable uh, households generally and the uh, small businesses and, and, and large businesses from the, the impact. And we saw, I think people will have seen yesterday, the, the type of, of electricity bills that ordinary coffee shops in the Midlands are facing. And I know that's exactly mm-hmm. the same. And, and I've been meeting with with local businesses in in in, in Mead and, and and elsewhere, um, they're they're faced with you know spectacular increases that just rewrites the rule book for them and and you know leaves them faced with with very stark uh, decisions to make in terms of opening hours, in terms of uh, staffing levels, in terms of of uh, profit yeah. and loss. Mm. I see the pubs are talking about closing early and that sort of thing as well, uh, but. Uh, it's the supply uh, uh, that's being impacted by the data centres. That's your belief, uh, and it's uh, what Eva Machiavelli of the CORU said uh, that they were leading to the increased demand, that 9% that you spoke about on the grid uh, on an annual basis. Um, is Sinn Féin against data centres? No, we're not against, against data centres. What, what we are against is a, a cack-handed approach that doesn't provide the the necessary supply you know so we're against the the government's approach thus far which was you know uh, uh, rolling out the red carpet for data data centers uh, you know a lack of planning essentially a, a demand-led approach if somebody wanted a data center they essentially got it you know bear in mind michael some of the data centers that were built in ireland didn't have tenants you know, you know, uh, they 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 had to yeah. search for for tenants. You know, so so that just says. But don't they facilitate these other companies, uh, the Facebooks of uh, the world, uh, like that base and Clane in doing its business? Oh, for, oh, for sure, yeah, and 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 that's that's a, a legitimate point. Um, uh, but but I think we have to balance all of this with. You know, at, at what point do we say enough is enough, or at what point do we say we're struggling to manage here, and uh, the, the failure to deliver on the the electricity generation mm-hmm. side, which we've we've 
failed now in winter 21, winter 22, we failed to deliver on committed supply. Okay. We have we have more data centres coming down the that, down the pipeline. So so yeah. that's the piece that that Sinn Fein has has a real problem with, and I think understandably so because the the, the net impact of it, Michael, is um, increased bills for for ordinary customers. Okay, and Airgrid told you yesterday uh, they're uh, trying to buy in uh, backup power so that we don't lose supply. Uh, and if the supply is there, that won't impact the price. The price is dictated by the cost of gas. And this is something, uh, as we were discussing yesterday in the programme, uh, which uh, may be tackled by the European Commission. Yeah, that's it, Michael. And just to say in relation to the procurement piece for these emergency backup generators, the CRU and the AirGrid between them failed to deliver for winter 21 and winter 22. It, they rush through, the government has to rush through emergency legislation just before the doll rose to literally rewrite the rule book. So there's there's real problems there in terms of that procurement process. Um, related then to the whole issue of, of price, um, is is the the, the linking the, the coupling of the price of gas and the price of electricity, and that's the you know the the uh, almighty markets. That's the way the market is designed at a European level. Um, that's why we've left we're left with the perverse situation that we're pay you know despite the fact that we have significant renewables and wind power. Uh, on the system that we're actually it makes no difference from a from a financial point of view we're paying the same price for wind as we are for gas because the way that the the, the market is designed and i have to say our government um the irish government argued against uh, decoupling the price of gas from from electricity which would have delivered a very significant saving for, for, for customers in the last 12 months. The French government, the Spanish government, the Portuguese government made the case in October 21 that there should be a decoupling, separating the price of gas from the price of electricity. The Irish government was one of nine governments at a European level to argue against that. Sinn Féin criticised them at the time. The Minister uh, for the Environment, Eamon Ryan, held the firm position that the, the profits of energy companies had to be protected because, you know, uh, they, they, because he wanted them to re- reinvest in, in renewable energy. I, I haven't seen them do that anyway. He held that position up until June. Lo and behold, the European Commission and the European Union are starting to move and the Irish government are, fall, are, are going to fall into it look like they're going to fall into line. It's you know deeply, uh, yeah. It's, it's scandalous, really, to be honest. Okay. Well, look, uh, let's uh, talk about uh, another issue because uh, undoubtedly you had a very long day yesterday after the six hours meeting uh, of uh, the Environment and Climate Action Committee. Uh, you went back to Navin for that meeting of uh, the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Yeah, Michael, and it was and it was a well attended meeting. Um, you know, uh, and um, I, I think it was it was clear um, that that uh, you know people are are frustrated. They're frustrated. I, I think they share your frustration, Michael, in terms of of uh, the avoidance of these issues by the the minister for for health. Um, the fact that the, the terms of reference aren't um, sufficient. They, they they don't do what they need to do, even though there was some contention in, in relation to that, I think for, for anybody that's you know gone to the bother of reading the terms of reference, know that 
the 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 only option that the people of Mead and certainly the seven thousand people that came out to to demonstrate and the thousands more that supported that seven thousand want to see is the investment and enhancement in in Navan Hospital. Mm. They want to see a proposal that outlines what it would take to bring Navan Hospital up to a, a safe standard at the A&E there. We don't have that. I think people can see through um, what the HSE are doing. They can see through what the what the government are doing and the minister is doing in relation to this. And, and I think they are resolute and determined to, to continue the, the battle to, to maintain the a- A&E open. Um, mm. And, you know, it you is... Don't, you don't think they're resigned to it being a case of fighting a losing battle, though? I don't. I don't think they are, um, Michael. Because I, I think, and I have to say this, um, you know, we were out collecting petitions. I think there is overwhelming public support for Navinani. I think the people really understand and appreciate the importance of it. Um, they, they they particularly understand the importance of it in the context of a health service that is struggling and the HSE that promises and promises in terms of reforms but never actually delivers them. So so there is, a, I think, a, a mentality there that, that we need to fight for this hospital. I have to say, any time I've been out, uh, and I've said this to you before, Michael, any time I've been out collecting petitions, um, there is overwhelming support and people just inherently know the, the importance of, of the hospital. I think, you know, it is deeply disappointing that the terms of reference uh, don't provide for for the solution that I believe is necessary for it. I, I think it's, you know, it's unacceptable for some government representatives to, to point the finger at the HSE and say it's, it's all on the HSE. We, we know that that whether they know it or not, that the Minister for Health and the government have clear authority in these matters and they need to exercise that, that authority. And, and I also point to the fact that, you know, it was confirmed on your show, Michael, that the Minister for Health uh, oversaw these terms of references and has agreed to these terms of references. And, uh, um, and, 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 and that's deeply disappointing, but it also tells a story. OK, well, undoubtedly that story will continue over the coming days and weeks, uh, it seems, uh, that's... Uh that uh, working group uh, should uh, be reporting in, in the coming weeks and, and making its recommendations on the process for closing the emergency department. Uh, we'll be speaking with uh, Minister Damien English, local TD, on the programme tomorrow morning uh, and we'll raise uh, some of those issues uh, that you've mentioned there with him then. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning. Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD for Mead East and uh, a member of uh, the Joint Committee on the Environment and climate action. To some of uh, the comments coming to us, uh, somebody in touch saying, I hope Michael needs Navin Hospital someday. Uh, I'm not sure uh, why they're saying that, uh, but I've certainly needed Navin Hospital in the past. I'm delighted to say, I have to say, I'm really delighted to say, I haven't needed Navin Hospital in some time. I think it's about 10 years uh, since I was under the excellent care of Mr. Aramu. Uh, and... Uh, wouldn't be here today, uh, as some people uh, would say, uh, but uh, <laughs> I hope I don't need to have an hospital or any hospital for some time to come, if you don't mind me saying so. Uh, but uh, I hope you hear that in the way that it's meant. Thanks to Carmel MacDonald, who often uh, gets in touch with us. We are getting a couple of calls now about the hospital. Um, she says the failure of the Department of Health and the HSE to plan and future-proof our services in response to the facts and based on all of the current data, i.e. by increasing capacity, is a cause of major stress and concern.
concern. She says the patients and staff are being forced to accept rationing. They have basic rights to a health service. We can never accept a decision that goes completely against common sense. We have a responsibility to advocate for our families and our communities, the sick and the vulnerable. And she says an increase in capacity at the Lourdes in Drogheda is already needed and will be rapidly outrun due to the population growth and ageing profile uh, and so on. Uh, thank you indeed. Uh, we'd uh, Somebody in touch with us uh, then uh, saying, oh my God, listening to your programme, our houses in Dunleer have been put on electric heat pumps after using coal for 23 years. Great time to do it. Thank you indeed. Uh, that is... Uh, the, the future, isn't it? Uh, Jack uh, says, would it not be an idea if the government were to uh, defer property tax until the summertime to help people get over the worry of the winter? People are scared of what's ahead this winter. Thanks, Jack, as always, for your text. Margaret, thank you, as always, for your text too. She says, a one-sided review of uh, the emergency department in Navan is not a proper review. If the review did or does include a way of keeping the A&E open, it's just window dressing if it, if it doesn't, uh, and lip service to what's already a foregone conclusion and an insult to the patients and people of Mead. Well, it doesn't uh, define that how you will, Margaret. Uh, it's obvious uh, listening to Peter Tobin uh, this morning that Damien English will argue otherwise uh, this morning, uh, but... The terms of reference uh, tell those who are carrying out the review what to review and how to review it and uh, what conclusion to come to, which is a process for closing it safely. Uh, we'd Frank texting us saying, how much tobacco is getting into Ireland without being detected? And another text about that from somebody who says, Michael, don't you think that our government, with all of the price hikes, is uh, providing uh, the climate for smuggling? Suit them better to regulate other institutions like insurance, estate agents, etc. Maybe a tax on mobile phone usage. Thank you indeed uh, for your text and thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, the public sector pay deal has not been uh, agreed as yet, uh, but the government has made its offer, increasing uh, the uh, increases for public sector workers uh, by 6.5% over the next two years at a cost of $6.5 billion. Uh, there's a, a slight problem, though, for the government going into the budget because we know uh, that there's lots of demands uh, on uh, the politicians across the next year and a lot of concern uh, across all sectors and every household worried about getting through the winter, let alone day to day. But uh, because of the public sector pay deal, it's lost 1.4 billion euro. Let's speak uh, to Neil Macdonald, uh, who's uh, the chief executive officer of the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. A very good morning to you, Neil, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, This is going to come uh, uh, as a significant challenge to the government, isn't it, Uh, given that the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council is saying that they would need €7.5 billion on the 27th of September in order for the country to stand still. Yes, Michael, and um, the, the Fiscal Advisory Council is is addressing this issue of, you know, what what people are notionally referring to as a surplus, which is a, a, a surplus on the current account. In other words, the difference between what the government takes in 
uh, and spends on a current basis that doesn't include long-term capital spending or, or infrastructural spending. Um, and they're they're identifying, uh, you know, the, the 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 fact that just what they call standstill expenditure, the amount that the the government is going to spend simply to honour existing commitments, um, is going to really severely limit what they can do uh, in budget twenty three and onwards. Um, and while we acknowledge, we absolutely understand in the small business community that. Um, you know, you know, payroll, the, the, mm. the delivery of public services is really important, and and our public servants are really important. But the the uh, inflationary crisis that we're in at the moment, and most particularly the energy uh, crisis, means that there are. It's not the most important. It's you know that, that managing that crisis this winter is going to be the most important priority for government. And public sector workers will wonder: Will they be able to afford? to heat their homes and turn the lights on and uh, whatever else uh, is involved uh, in their daily lives, whether that's grocery shopping or any of the other things like transport that we're seeing increases in, uh, on such a small pay increase, 6.5% over two years, uh, if inflation is all running, already running close at 10%. That's true, Michael. And, you know, a, a 6.5% pay rise when there's 9% inflation means that in real terms your wages are going down 2.5%. That, that is an unfortunate fact of life. However, um, the people we are talking about in the public sector um, are, are paid 27% more on average than uh, the rest of the workforce. Uh, and they make up 15% roughly, depending on, on what your definition of the public service is, 15% of the workforce. So what we're saying here is, you know, the government has to prioritise the 85% of people that make up the rest of the workforce who do not have incomes as large as this. Um, while you and I are, are having a very genteel conversation uh, at the end of August about this, uh, let me assure you, and, and for those of your, your listeners, um, Michael, who remember the, the energy crisis in the 70s and the power outages when the electricity stopped and we were given hours in the evening when, uh, you know, we did our business in the evening by candlelight. That is a real possibility going into this winter. It is also, unfortunately, because of our failure to invest in our infrastructure over the last decade and a half, it's also a real possibility for next winter, believe it or not. And while this is the issue du jour that we're talking about now for the public service, it will be a storm in a teacup compared to how things are going to go if we are told that there's going to be an interruptions in electricity supply this Mm. winter. Yeah, well, that was because of uh, the industrial unrest and the strikes that took place at the time. And I think they used to always turn the lights off and the power off uh, just as Top of the Pops was about to start, which was very (laughs) upsetting at the time. Uh, But, uh, I mean, isn't that the risk uh, that you face again if... uh, uh, you have uh, uh, dissatisfaction with pay scales. Uh, you're going to have people out in strike, aren't you? That's absolutely true, Michael. And all workers have a legal right to withdraw their labour. Uh, but from an industrial relations point of view, it's always it's it's very important to understand that if avoidance 
of industrial action is your number one priority mm. and the only thing you seek to do as part of industrial relations and human resource management is to avoid having a strike, then you're always unfortunately going to end up paying too much for your services. Um, in reality, we have to acknowledge that by law, people can withdraw their labour. And if they're determined to do that in pursuit of pay awards significantly in excess of what will be available uh, to to other people in society and to the 85% of other workers, well, sometimes, unfortunately, that means we're going to have to, ha- have to take mm. a strike. OK, well... The 6.5%, uh, I think, would cost 1.6 billion. 1.4 billion will have to come out of uh, the budget to be announced uh, on the 27th of September. Uh, no doubt that's not the biggest surprise in the world to the government. It knew it had to come up uh, with uh, the money to increase pay in the public sector. Uh, but what do you think of the 1.4 billion? Would they have factored in so much? I don't know what their calculations or what their plans were on the arithmetic of this, but um, when you look at, for example, and um, you know, I'm sure all your listeners saw that lady in Athlone yesterday running a cafe that's incurred a uh, €9,800 uh, electricity bill for two months in the summer when her entire bill for last year was €12,500. You know, they're businesses that are are faced with very, very limited options. Either cut the, her her spending on on labour, which is 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 going to make the position of her employees worse, or she's going to have to put up prices for her customers, which is simply going to pass the problem on to consumers. Now, they're the real-world problems that exist out there during this energy crisis, and other governments in Europe are intervening directly. So, for example, Greece is giving a 60 cent per kilowatt hour subsidy to small businesses and a 30 cent per kilowatt hour subsidy to big business in it, it, with the intention that these huge energy uh, price increases are not being passed on to customers. That we are going to need to intervene to that level uh, in Ireland this winter. Uh, Greece is going to spend 1.9 billion euro in a country that doesn't have the sort of climate that we have. So you, the, the demands on the exchequer come this budget are going to be extreme. That's the, that's the only point we're mm. making on, on, on this public sector pay deal. Is there the prospect of businesses closing up shop because of electricity bills? There really is. Uh, I, I, I think it's more likely in the short run, Michael, that what you'll see is is not that they would close up, but that a business that runs, say, you know, nine till eight mm. will run midday till eight, or it will close as a lot of, for example, restaurants are doing now. They're staying shut completely on Mondays and Tuesdays. Mm. I, I, I think it's far more likely in the short to medium term that rather than shut completely, they will restrict their hours. But of course, restricting their hours impacts the, their workers' pay mm. negatively. Close from five to seven, maybe. Uh, what you're referring there to, I, I know, Michael, is mm-hmm. is. is the suggestion from the the, the um, utilities regulator that there would be premium pricing attached to energy usage within those hours. 
um, you know, it's very difficult to suggest that you'd close a restaurant, for yeah. instance, at that time, because that would be prime trading time. But yes, potentially, the businesses will look to restrict their their energy usage within those within those hours. Okay, uh, really strange times. Thank you, Neil, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Neil MacDonald, uh, who's uh, CEO of the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Is me. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we were speaking yesterday about an article in uh, the Irish Times uh, which highlighted how local authorities are owed over 100 million, 105 million euro in unpaid rent from social housing tenants, 285 of whom have arrears that are in excess of 20,000 euro. Uh, our thanks uh, to Mead County Council uh, who tell us uh, that uh, the arrears owed to them is in the region of 1.9 million euro uh, there's one case over 20,000 in arrears that's 23,485 which is owed by one person to the council at this stage and uh, there's 25 cases which owe between 10,000 and 20,000 euro to Mead County Council that amounts to 320,914 euro our thanks to Mead County Council for that our thanks too to Loud County Council who have provided us with similar information uh, and it seems the problem is all the greater in County Louth. Uh, over uh, 2 million, over 2.5 million, 2,632,424 euro is owed in total and 706 tenants in County Louth are in arrears of more than three months, amounting to a bill of almost two and a half million euro. Joanna Byrne is a local Sinn Féin councillor and chair of the Strategic Housing Policy Committee and on the line with us. And good morning to you, Joanna, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, this, I'm sure, comes as no great surprise to you, but it, it is shocking all the same, isn't it? Good morning, Michael, and, and thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, look, it, it doesn't come as any great surprise to us. These figures are presented um, to councillors on a monthly basis and updated on a monthly basis in the Chief Executive's monthly management report. It's something that's raised um, every month without fail by, by members of concern, especially when we're, we're battling to get things done and there's never enough money to get what we would like done. Um, done and seen through. So it is something, it's an area the councillors constantly highlight um, that the council could be recouping mm. um, some finances. But what, what I would say is with, with articles like this, um, in Loud County Council's defence, it's probably important to put things like this into perspective. Loud County Council do manage quite a large housing stock. There's 4,176 units. Um, it's a highly dense populated density area um, and, and the housing stock would be quite larger than some of the local mm. authorities that are, are highlighting smaller amounts of arrears. Hold on, what did you, of, sorry, sorry, sorry Joanna, um, did you say 4,176? 67, or 76, yeah, yeah. sorry. But 4,176 properties, uh, there's about a, a thousand, a quarter of the tenants in, in yeah, arrears. I was just coming to that, yeah, there is there is still a large number of accounts in arrears, um, just over 25%, yeah, um, it's a massive number, um, but what I would say, there, there is an active regime um, in place, probably vastly improved over the last 18 to 24 months by mm. the local authority. And I think if you go back a few years, managers. it's about two and a half million that's all. Yeah. I think if you go back a few years, it would have been four 
four five million euro. Uh, yeah, so it that's has what I mean. There has yeah. been a huge improvement. Um, there has been every tenant now has their own rent manager who is constantly engaging and trying to promote and encourage responsible payment of rent out of the thousand odd mm. cases that are in arrears. 827 of these are now in payment plans. So that's over 70% of the account in arrears are now engaging yeah. and endeavouring to bring their account into tw- line. So tw- that is particularly positive. But 20, um, 25% in arrears, it's... Yeah. It, I mean, if you didn't pay your rent to a private landlord, you'd be served with a notice to quit. You'd be evicted. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And you'd be paying a, a much higher significant amount of rent if you well, were renting what, what, in the what, private rental what market. Are, what, what are people paying in rent in Elks County? It, it varies. Um, there is, it, it's a scheme called the differential rent yeah. scheme that every local authority operates by, mm-hmm. and it can be quite complex. But yeah. the simplest way I can probably explain it is that um, it's it's based on people's income. Mm. Um, so there's a baseline for those who are on state payments, social welfare payments or whatever they may be. And if a tenant is working and their income increases, the rent increases accordingly. Mm. Um, and, and likewise, should I say, if the rent decreases, the rent decreases. But mm. it is up to the tenant to notify the local authorities yeah. to change in their financial circumstances. We, 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 heard, we heard in Maid yesterday that it was between €17 Euro and €190 Euro a week. Yeah, it can go. It can go anywhere. Be kind of like I would yeah. imagine the beginning. Um, the beginning mark is probably around twenty-five euros yeah. here. Okay. Um, but and, and then that goes up depending on the income, depending on the okay. amount of people that's in the house and the, the combined income that's coming in. And we we um, heard we heard the media say the average I think was seventy-two euro a week. Would that be about the same? That would sound around the same. And yeah, twenty and twenty-five percent of tenants are in arrears. It, it, it's scandalous, you know, and, and it's um, it's something that's becoming, you can see even in that report yesterday from the Irish Times, it's a huge problem nationwide. It, mm. It's not just um, locally here in Loudoun Mead in, in both counties' defence. It's something that's escalating throughout the country. And I do envisage that it's probably going to get worse as people start to struggle. The cost of living has gone up. Um, heating's going up, everything is going yeah. up um, and we're expecting a very dark winter so right, but, those but, who but, are genuinely struggling um, may struggle a little bit okay, more. Okay, but they're, deci- they're say, deciding not to pay their rent obviously because they can uh, and 706 people in arrears of three months, um, they're deciding to do something else. Uh, I, 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 it's probably true that some of them are deciding to go to the pub or buy cigarettes or something rather than pay their rent, is it not? Maybe so, but yeah. some of them may be facing um you know, the, I know, the battle I know. of heating the house and putting food on the table. But what I would say is to encourage those who are struggling is to contact your local authority um, because nine times out of ten, they're very good. They will work with tenants who are in financial difficulty. And as I said, they will assign a rent manager to put you into a payment plan and, and stay in constant communication with you. And that way you're not putting yourself in a position where you're going to get warnings, you're going to get threatening letters, you're going to get court letters, and that's only going to add another pressure onto somebody who is already struggling. Joanna, those who are choosing not to pay the rent, that's you know that's something they're going to have to face um, when, when they come knocking on their door. And they will come knocking on their door and warnings will be issued. OK, Joanna, I have to leave there. We are over time. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning. Joanna Byrne, Sinn Féin councillor, is uh, the chair of uh, the Strategic Housing, Pol- Housing Policy Committee on Louth County Council. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie LMFM.
Slam FM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.